Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. We just read it. Let me read through it again. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting. What is this uh, obscure discipline that Jesus is referring to here? Perhaps you're familiar with it to some extent, but I think that some of us, or maybe even many of us, uh, have had maybe little to no teaching about it. It just, it just doesn't uh, stand out as one of the kinds of things that, that uh, marks our regular lives, I think. It's one of those topics that we're pretty sure that the Bible talks about somewhere. Kind of like the, uh, you know, the teaching where Jesus, doesn't Jesus somewhere send out 70 disciples to go cast out demons and heal the sick or something? Like we're really not sure if that passage applies to us still or, I don't know, it's in there somewhere. And so in light of the likelihood that some of us have never intentionally fasted a meal in our lives perhaps, uh, I think that um, it'd be helpful today to talk about some basics of fasting. N- not so much in terms of the pragmatics of fasting, like, you know, how long should I fast for? Uh, and I'll just parenthetically, start small. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to go much into that kind of thing. Is it, you know, is it, a fa- is it still a fast if I drink a little bit of juice? Um, or is, is it still fasting? Can you fast from things other than food, like maybe fasting from movies? Does that count? Parenthetical. Uh, yeah, could. But I'm, that's not, I'm not going to focus so much on the pragmatics of fasting. I, what I want to do is talk about the basics of fasting in terms of what's happening at the heart level when we fast. What is uh, happening in the heart? What's happening to the heart? What's being accomplished in us, what's God up to? So let's let's see what the Bible has to say about fasting. We'll use our passage here um, for a section of, of the sermon, but we're gonna we're actually gonna start in the Old Testament. And I'll start by just saying that fasting was a, a normal part of Jewish religious spiritual life, and, and part of the reason for that was that it was required annually for the entire congregation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. Additionally, also we see in the the Old Testament that fasting uh, occurred from time to time as some act of humility, an expression of humility before God, where uh, oftentimes accompanied with repentance, sorrow over sin, sorrow for the dishonoring of God's name happens by individuals. They do that do it sometimes, sometimes a large group of people. For example, in, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, we read, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So here we have fasting as an expression of sorrow for sin. We're sorry that we've dishonored your name. 
We're sorry that we've turned from you. Sometimes in the Old Testament, fasting accompanies a dire request for God to do something for the sake of His name, to do something for the sake of His people, move powerfully, Lord. For example, Esther Esther is is, uh, asking God to spare her life as she approaches the king of Persia to request deliverance for the Jews. She has to go in before the king, and if you go in before the king uninvited, it's death penalty. That's tough. That's harsh. Those are some harsh rules, but that's the way that it was. And so she says, we need to pray And we need to fast so that I don't lose my life and so that the Jews can be delivered. Esther chapter 4 verse 14. Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, I think. So Mordecai says to Esther, If you keep silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether... You have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So here we have the fast being partnered with a desperate request for God to preserve her life and more broadly for the sake of preserving God's people. By the time that Jesus shows up, fasting has become ingrained into the regular kind of religious discipline of some of the Jews in Israel. So Jesus, for example, says in Luke 18, we read about a story about a Pharisee, read a story about a Pharisee, who fasts twice a week. Now Jesus actually is just making up the scenario to, to teach a point, to teach a principle. But we've, we have other Jewish sources that confirm that, yeah, this was a practice. There were, some, there were some people who would fast twice a week. All of which is to say, fasting was a familiar part of Jewish religious activity by the time Jesus gets on the scene, it's a common practice in the culture, they're, they're familiar with it, they're participating in it, and it was so common, in fact, that it's surprising that Jesus' disciples didn't fast. That surprised some people. Listen to the question that the disciples of John the Baptist ask Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. The disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus' disciples did not fast. Which is a strange problem, because in our main passage today, Matthew 6, 16-18, Jesus is teaching us how to fast. So... This brings us to an important question. Does God expect fasting from Christians? And the answer to this question can be seen in the rest of Jesus' response to John's disciples. So let's read the whole passage. Go ahead and turn there, if you, if you would. Matthew chapter 9, we'll start in verse 14. It's just a few chapters away from where you are. 
9.14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. So explain this to us, Jesus, teacher. Why, why don't your disciples fast like the rest of us fast? All, all the other disciples of Jewish teachers are fasting. And in fact, the disciples of a prophet of God are fasting. How, how come your disciples aren't fasting? And Jesus responds to the question with a wedding analogy. At a wedding, as long as the bridegroom is present, the party continues. People aren't mourning. Why would the guests at a wedding cease to celebrate and start to be sorrowful, sorrowful when the bride and groom are still there? Or the, bride, the, the, the uh, bridegroom specifically he talks about. They wouldn't. They wouldn't stop celebrating. And that's the point. Well, Jesus is here with his disciples. There's no need for them to abstain from the celebration. However, verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. In those days. So when the bridegroom leaves, then his disciples will fast. So it seems clear that Jesus expects that his disciples are going to be fasting at some point. That it, that it will be somewhat normative in the experience of a disciple once Jesus is gone. And that's why Jesus begins today's passage the way he does. And when you fast, not... If you fast, but when you fast. And then he gives a bunch of instructions on how to do it. And that's about as clear as it gets. That's about the most specific teaching about whether or not we're supposed to fast that we have in the New Testament. So we don't want to be dogmatic about it and set up any firm expectations about what this should look like. I want to be careful to say that this is not an explicit command in the scriptures. So for people who, for example, for medical reasons, just could not fast, don't worry. It's not like you're disobeying any explicit command in the scriptures. There is no command to fast. But let's not lightly overlook the fact that Jesus anticipates it as a characteristic of those who follow him. So is that fair? I don't want to be too dogmatic, but I do want to say Jesus seems to expect it. Uh, To some extent, should be a part of his disciples' lives. So what are the essential elements, then, of Christian fasting? And let's go back now to Matthew chapter 6, our main passage today. We're going to look at verses 16 to 18. We're going to try to pull out some essential elements of fasting. What's at the heart of fasting? Let me read it one more time. Verse 16. And when you fast, when, when when you fast, when you fast, do not look gloomy. Like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Now, we've talked about this in previous weeks. This is the third illustration that Jesus has used in order to explain the overarching principle that he introduces in chapter 6, verse 1. So take your eye up there. Verse 1 reads like this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So the main issue of the heart that Jesus is trying to get at comes down to this simple question. What do you desire more? The praise of men or the affirmation of your heavenly Father? What, what do you love more? What, who do you want to please? Man or God? And the answer to that question will impact the way that you give to the needy, verses 2 to 4. It will impact the way that you pray, verses 5 to 6. And it will impact the way that you fast, verses 16 to 18. Notice the wrong way to fast, verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. These men are fasting. They want us to know it. So that we'll look at their piety and we'll praise them for being such godly men. Look at how screwed up his face looks today. Uh, They love the praises of men. They love the praises of men so much that they will forego food in order to gain the praise. I'm willing to go hungry fast. So that you will think, I'm cool, or great, or godly. It's a hunger exchange. I'm so hungry for your praise that I'll go physically hungry in order to get it. It reveals the true love of the heart. And that's the wrong way to fast. Because it's the wrong love to have. Jesus offers an alternative, verse 17. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, don't disfigure your face so that people are going to notice that you're fasting. But go ahead, keep up your normal personal hygiene. That's what the anointing of the head and the washing of your face refers to. This is just what they did. Just, you know, brush your teeth, comb your, don't walk into work looking all disheveled so that people be like, hey, what's going on? Oh, just not eating today. Just, just go on, be normal, don't make any attempt to make a special announcement about your fast. Just act like yourself. Now, if people find out that you're fasting, which often happens, actually, because, like for your spouse, for example. What if your spouse finds out that you're not fasting because you're not eating anything at dinner? Um, no, don't worry about it. It's not what Jesus is after here. He's not saying um, lie. He's not saying um, if, if you know you better go. You know you better take a day away so that nobody notices. He, he's, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? If people find out about it, then so be it. What's motivating this person? What does this person desire so much? What does the proper fast 
look like? What are you hungering for? What are you so hungry for that you're willing to forego food in order to gain it? This is a hunger exchange as well. Verses 17 and 18, it's a different, it's a different kind of hunger exchange because it has a different object. It's not hungering for the praise of men. Jesus says that the kind of fasting that God desires is driven by a hunger for God, for His fatherly affirmation, the rewards that a, that a father gives to his children when he's pleased with them. And it outweighs the hunger for food. Jesus is trying to motivate us to fast by promising that your father sees it, your father will reward it. And the only way that that's going to be motivating is if you think God is wonderful. If you think God is satisfying. Otherwise, as Jesus offers that to you, you're like, ugh, I'd rather have food. So I suggest that underlying all God-honoring fasting, whether it's an act of humility and repentance, or whether it's a, for the purpose of making some special request for God to move powerfully in the world, or whether it's a regular spiritual discipline that you're incorporating into your life somehow, Underlying all God-honoring fasting is a fundamental desire for God. A desire to be with Him. A desire to please Him. A desire to receive His affirmation. A desire for the glorification of His name. A desire for His kingdom. A desire for His will. A desire for the pleasure of His fatherly rewards. And that desire is what pushes us to fast. To, to forego one desire in pursuit, of, in pursuit of something better. So let me give you this fundamental, or let me give you, let me take the fundamental principle and give you a definition that I think gets at the heart of what fasting is. So if you want to, you can write this down. Here's a, a definition of fasting that gets right at the heart of it. Fasting is the intentional abstinence of something that you desire, normally food, the intentional abstinence of something you desire, normally food, for the purpose of expressing and cultivating a superior desire for God and for the manifestation of His glory. Fasting is the intentional abstinence from something you desire, normally food, for the purpose of expressing and cultivating a superior desire for God and for the manifestation of His glory. And what I'm going to do for the rest of our time is just unpack that definition with three points. And the first point is this. Fasting is the intentional abstinence from something you desire, something you want. Fasting is not supposed to be an emotionless, religious duty, as though the ritual itself is pleasing to God. So Lent, for example, it, it's not the fact that you're abstaining from something in itself, it's not the religious duty in itself that's pleasing to God. It's always like, wow, that's impressive. Fasting deals with the state of the heart. So Lent could be Exercised in a way that honors God. It could be exercised in a way that doesn't honor God. Depends on what's happening in the heart. 
Fasting deals with the state of the heart, and more specifically, it relates to the things that we that we desire. You don't fast by abstaining from things that you don't enjoy, right? You don't fast from doing taxes. You don't fast from cleaning toilets. You don't fast from getting your teeth pulled. I don't, at least. We fast by abstaining from things that we enjoy, like food. For a time, we say no to things that we normally take pleasure in, and that's why it's hard to do. That's why fasting is very difficult. We say no to things we normally take pleasure in, and we willingly... We, we, we willingly resist those things that we desire. So point one, fasting is the intentional abstinence from something you desire. Point two, fasting is, I said, the abstinence of this thing that you desire in order to um, express a superior desire for God and for the manifestation of his glory. So I'm abstaining, abstaining from this in order to express superior desire for something else, in order to say something, express something. It's not merely a call to resist desires altogether. Fasting is a, is a call to express a different kind of desire. It's a, it's a way of declaring to God that you love Him, that you long for Him, you long for the success of His purposes, you long for the manifestation of His glory on the earth, more than you love the most basic necessities of your own life. That's what you're saying to God when you fast. Consider again the logic that Jesus used when he explains why his disciples are not fasting in Matthew 9. He says that when the bridegroom is present with the guests, they are in a presumably a state of celebration, and when he leaves, they fast. So how come Jesus' disciples suddenly abstain from food when he leaves? It's because they love him. They rejoice, they feast when he's present, when he's speaking to them, when he's teaching them, when he's touchable, when he's visible, he's there in their midst. But when he's gone, they miss him. They miss him deeply. And they want him to return. Did you cover that for me, brother? <coughs> Thank you. They miss him. And the way that they express that longing, the way that they express the sorrow, is they fast. It's a way of expressing a desire for Jesus. Therefore, when we humbly resist the good pleasures of food, and we turn to Christ and we say with our hearts, I prefer you, Lord Jesus, even more than these delicious provisions. We're not merely resisting a desire for food, but that resistance is simultaneously expressing a desire for God. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from one desire to express another desire. The third point, well, actually, before I get there, let me just say, that, actually, that kind of presents a problem for us. Many of us, not all of us. That presents a problem for all of us. We'll face it at one point or another. And it's the painful realization that uh, we would rather eat than fast and have more of Jesus. We, we, we would. Some of us, quite frankly, do not desire God more than we desire dinner this evening. Right? 
So what do we do if our fast simply is not an expression, a true expression, a true expression of a true longing for God that exceeds the longing for food? But if you're thinking, okay, I can fast, but it's not because I want God more than food. (laughs) Because I know that I'm supposed to fast. What if your desire is not very strong? And that brings us to the to the third part of the definition. Fasting is the, the resistance of this desire for the purpose of not only expressing that I have a greater desire, but actually it's also for the sake of cultivating that greater desire. It's for the purpose of cultivating a greater desire for God than for food. It's not there yet, but I'm going to fast because I want it to be there. I want to want Him more. I want to love Him more than I love burritos. So suppose that... uh, Let me see if I can illustrate this point of cultivating a superior desire. Suppose you decide that you're going to fast this week as a way of kind of intentionally applying this this to your life. You're going to abstain from one meal this week. Okay, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to apply this. And uh, suppose you decide on Tuesday that you're going to take your noon hour, lunchtime, to break away from the office. I'm going to spend that hour instead. I'm going to I'm going to um, spend that time with God. I'm going to pray. I'm I'm going to I'm going to eat the Word of God. I'm going to feast on Jesus for that hour. And at about eleven o'clock, so an hour before your fast starts, your stomach starts to rumble because it's getting ready for what it normally has at 12 o'clock. And suddenly, from somewhere in the garden of your heart springs a uh, somewhat edgy and bitter thought, perhaps aimed at your pastor, who talked you into this stupid idea. And then, and then you, start, yeah, you start counting the hours until dinner. You realize you're going to be you're going to be hungry today because it's already started. About 15 minutes later, you get a phone call from your spouse who notices that you seem a little edgy. It's not even noon noon yet. I mean, nothing's different except for your expectation of what's going to happen in an hour. And you realize that the thought of skipping just the thought of skipping lunch today has been a serious emotional disappointment to you. What would happen if I suggested that as another act of practical application of this message that we corporately fast the rest of today? And we will feast on Jesus from, if you're willing, from now until breakfast tomorrow morning. We'll break fast tomorrow morning. How's that sound to you guys? If you're like me, that thought might be very disappointing right now. In fact, and, and okay, your hunger probably hasn't changed from what it was 30 seconds ago. But I say that, and something in you perhaps is like, oh. Maybe even a little angry at even the suggestion. 
If you're like me, it's really a disappointing thought. If I suggest that, which I'm not, by the way. Okay? I'm not inviting you to do that. Um, I'm not going to do it. So, um, the point is, what's happening in the heart? What's happening in the heart when that's going on? The heart, this, what this is, it's, it's a commentary on the heart's desperate love for food. It's the protest of an unsatisfied craving. It's a revelation of what really lies behind the contentment of my heart. Why am I so happy every Sunday? Why am I so happy every Sunday afternoon to come up here and preach? It's not because of Jesus. It's because of dinner. I love dinner time. I'm out of character right now. I'm being honest with you. I love dinner time. It's my favorite meal of the day. I look forward to it all day long. I'm not kidding. From before breakfast, I can't wait for dinner. That's weird, I guess. I don't know. I just love it. And sometimes when I discover that we're planning to eat something that I don't particularly like, my whole demeanor, my whole attitude towards my wife, towards my kids, towards my life just changes. Oh! Oh! I was, I was looking forward to dinner. Now I'm not. I, I get down. I get disappointed. I get whiny like a little spoiled brat. Because I'm being deprived of something that I love. And it's revealing that there's something amiss in my heart, isn't it? When I talk about it this way, I know, I know some of you, maybe all of you can relate to this at some level. Fasting is an intentional abstinence from things that you love for a season, that helps you see what you most deeply love. John Piper says, Christian fasting is a test to see what desires control us. What are our bottom line passions? And that's why fasting helps us not only express that desire for God, but it actually helps us cultivate a desire for God because it exposes what's really in the heart. You couldn't even see it before until you abstained from your love affair and then you realize, wow, I'm really leading on that. It reveals what our idolatrous desires are and then it provides an opportunity for us to turn away from those imposters and turn to the Savior who forgives us for that idolatry and satisfies our hearts. Fasting removes the emotional crutches that we've been leaning on and forces us to look somewhere else for stability. And it focuses in on Jesus and says, I'm going to find it in you. So this process of seasonally forgoing food or or sex, or entertainment, or cigarettes, or social media, as the ultimate source of your emotional stability. It's a powerful tool for the cultivation of a heart that is more supremely satisfied in God Himself. 
See that? Not only is it an abstinence in order to express desire, but it's an abstinence in order to say, okay, the desire's not there. Let it be there. I'm going to starve myself of this. It's going to expose my idols. I'm going to confess those, turn from them, go to you, and just satisfy me, Lord. Satisfy me. I refuse. I'm not going over to that right now. I'm going to you right now because I need more of you. I hunger for more of you. And that's why God loves to respond to fasting. You see, it's when Jesus promises us that if we fast in secret that our Father will reward us, He's not saying it earns God's favor. It's not like God is looking on that saying, wow, you really are so devout, Jeremy. I'm really going to pay you back for that. I'm going to give you big time answer to that prayer. Because uh, it's just impressive. When God sees us fasting like this, what He sees are people expressing and cultivating a delight in who He is. He sees people who want more of Him, people who want Him to be honored, people who want Him to move in the world, people want Him to make Himself known, people who want Him to accomplish His purposes in the world. And when He sees that, what He sees is that we are aligning ourselves with the very purpose for which He created the world, which is to magnify His name by causing people to delight in Him. We're lined up with God's purposes. So God's delight in our fasting is not a love for some empty religious duty. The Father rewards us not because we've earned it through our affliction, but because our affliction, the self-imposed fast, is an attempt to express and to cultivate this chief desire. And it's a desire that God loves to see in us. God, I hunger for more of you. He loves to see that in us. I hunger for more of you. And that's what the fast proclaims. So, I invite you to be desperate for the presence of God. And to be desperate for the return of Jesus, our bridegroom. And to be desperate for the glory of the risen King to be known and loved in our church and in our city and in our nation and on the earth. So consider fasting. And start small. Try fasting a meal sometime. See how it goes. And then maybe a few weeks later, try it again. See how it goes. And then maybe maybe uh, consider uh, fasting one meal a month next year. Or maybe just try it for three months. See how it goes. Start small. You don't have to. You don't have to go crazy. Ask God to guide you. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to Che or myself. What, what, you know, what do you think would be? What do you think would be reasonable? One time I hadn't. One time I tried to fast for a really long time, yeah, way too long. And uh, it would have been helpful if I had just talked to some people beforehand, you know, just to get some of their feedback. What seems reasonable? Um, really, the thing is, just consider it as something that should be possibly 
probably incorporated into your life at some level. Some level. Just consider that. Pray about it. And let us join with King David, who said, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Let's pray. Lord, we want more of you. We do. I know that we have room to grow, all of us, but I believe that for those who belong to you, you've put into our hearts a love for you. And it's a love for you that, that, that outweighs all other loves. might be just a little mustard seed, Lord. I pray that you would fan it to flame. You would help us to express our love for you and to cultivate that love for you through fasting in our lives to some extent. Some, somehow, some way, help us to not neglect this, this gift, really, this opportunity to, um, to grow our hearts and to grow closer to you. Why don't you just take a minute Right now, in your in your own heart, and maybe as as uh, me plays a little bit, just just pray and respond to God. How does God want you to respond? To this? Mm-hmm.